Alright, I only have seven slides for this hour, but there's a good chance that we will break out in fistfights as a result of what we're going to cover. So just be ready. Okay? We're moving on into, we're, we're switching gears to our soteriology class, and we're going to talk about God's plan to redeem man. Okay, now in your notes, I think it's your soteriology notes part one, which I think you got tonight, I've got this long chart of a whole bunch of scriptures in which the evidence for what I'm going to present to you right now is given, and I can't possibly go through all those passages with you, so I'm just going to give you the results. It's the one with all those dots. You see it? Okay. All right. Some things that Scripture says about God's plan to redeem man. Number one, it's an eternal plan. He planned it before he created. Secondly, it's a purposeful plan. Now, among the purposes are redeeming man and glorifying God. It's a wise plan. God planned it by his wise counsel and there's no one wiser than him. It's a plan according to his good pleasure. He did it that way because that's the way he felt like doing it. And if you don't like it, tough. Really. You know, you share the gospel with somebody and they say, I don't like a God who says that I have to believe in his son who went to the cross. Well... The politically incorrect answer is tough. That's the way he's done it, and if you're not willing to come to him on his terms, then you won't come at all. Now, I'm not suggesting that's what we should say to them, at least not in every case. But there might be some cases where it's appropriate. Okay. God's plan is predictive. He knows how it's going to go, and he's revealed some of how it's going to go to us. Not a lot but some. God's plan... I'm sorry, Laurie, I'm always standing the wrong way. God's plan is actively executed. His hand is visible in human history, at least at certain points. It's unstoppable. Nothing can prevent its completion. This is kind of interesting when you think about Satan and what he's trying to do. Now, I think Satan reads Scripture and he takes clues from Scripture to set up a plan to stop doing God from what Scripture says God cannot be stopped from doing. Kind of interesting. Why does he do that? It's because he's self-deceived and he committed himself to a path of self-deception and there's no going back. Okay, God's plan is ordered. It follows a plan, a planned and established time sequence. It's specific. Now, here's where people may start getting upset. God knows whom he will save, how, and when. I'm convinced the scripture teaches this. God's plan is motivated by love. He acts in love to save the race that bears his image. Now, these facts suggest some observations. Okay, These aren't inspired, but I think they're sensible. Redemption is not an afterthought. Okay? Redemption was always part of God's plan when he created the universe. So his grace and mercy are eternal. He didn't just drum them up when he needed them. Now, 
I think we have to recognize that there is a purpose and even some value to sin in God's plan. We've argued that God is not the author of sin, but I don't think we can argue that God didn't know it was going to happen. He did. I think we can even say that God planned that it would happen. But he planned that it would happen in such a way that he was not the author of it. And we don't know how he's not the author of it. Well, we know that the responsibility for sin is always on the person, on the moral being who commits the sin. God never commits sin. He did create moral beings that do commit sin, and he created them and placed them in a plan in which he knew they would commit sin. But he didn't commit it. And beyond that, I don't know where to go. It makes sense, but it's not very satisfying, is it? <laughs> okay. I think we can rest rest in the confidence that the elect will be saved. This confidence, however, does not and should not make us ambivalent about evangelism. It should not make us say, well, if God is going to save my mother, I don't need to pray for her. Not my business. Okay? God says it is my business. And he says if I do what he wants me to do and cooperate with him in the carrying out of his plan, he will reward me for it. And if I fail to cooperate, I will be guilty of disobedience. So... You know, as I've said before, God's sovereignty is comforting, but it shouldn't be complacent, complacency forming. It shouldn't make us complacent. It should comfort us, but not make us complacent, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay. God's plan brings glory to himself as he shows how he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Or to put it another way, how he can justly justify the unjust without being unjust himself. All right? That's really what that says, isn't it? It's a little redundant, but it's kind of fun to say it that way. Okay. God's plan does open God to the charge of being unfair. In fact, I will go so far as to say that God is unfair. And praise God he is. If God was fair, I don't have a chance. Right? That's according to human standards. Well, well, I, I, don't, I don't think the concept of fairness even appears in Scripture. No, but I'm saying like according to human standards is the fairness we're talking about. As far as if you look at it from the fact that we're all fallen creatures that deserve hell, then I would say he's absolutely more than fair. Well, he's just. Okay, he's, he's right. He, he is more than fair. You're absolutely right. He gives somebody salvation. No, no. Yeah, no, when I, when I say God is unfair, I'm saying he's unfair in the positive direction. Yeah. Okay, he's, like you said, he's more than fair. Okay, his grace and mercy give us what justice would say we don't deserve. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, now, here's where we're going to start getting close to fist fights. Okay? Alright. You'll see why in a minute. God's decree is his complete plan. We've talked about this last week, right? His decrees are the components of his decree. Now the components or decrees of God's plan that bear on his plan of redemption are 
in no particular order. May I have the envelope, please? <laughs> the decree to elect, which is called election. The decree to provide salvation, which is called provision. The decree to create and allow the fall, which is called fall. These are not that difficult as far as the term terminology is concerned. And the decree to redeem those who believe, and that's called decision. Okay? Now stick with me. The fights will start soon. <laughs> Historically, one's view of the sequence of these decrees has been closely related to another disputed issue, the extent of the atonement. Okay? The view of limited atonement says that Christ died only for the elect. The view of unlimited atonement says that Christ died for the sins of all, but only the elect will have the value of his atonement applied to them in a saving way. Okay? Just so you know, both of these views are orthodox. Neither one is heretical. Okay? And don't say that either one is. They're not. Okay? The church historically has said that both are within orthodoxy and Godly people hold both of these views and they have good reasons for holding the views that they hold. And I have very good reasons for holding the view that I hold. <laughs> I'm just picking on you. <laughs> Maybe I won't tell you. That's true, I have. Okay. Both positions fall within orthodoxy. Okay. Now here... This is the money slide, okay? There's a lot to look at here. This is in your notes. If you will take the time to understand this, you will learn a lot from this chart, okay? Now, what you're seeing here is that there are basically four views with regard to the order of the decrees. The supralapsarian view, I'll explain the terminology in a minute. The infralapsarian view. The sublapsarian view and the Arminian view. Okay? Now you see supra, infra, and sub. This means above, this means between, this means below. Okay? The word lapse comes from the Latin word for fall, like collapse. Okay? When something collapses, it falls. Okay? Now if you look at the order that you see here, in every case, forget the underlined one. Fall, provision, decision. Fall, provision, decision. Fall, provision, decision. Fall, provision, decision. Okay? The only thing that changes is where election fits in the sequence. And notice how it's at the top, a little lower, a little lower, and then at the bottom. You see that? This thing is very orderly. Now, again... We're talking about first decree, decree, second decree, third degree, fourth decree. And the basic idea, I'll take your question in a second, is that when God made his plan for redemption, although God doesn't plan things in time, there is a logical sequence of things in his plan. Okay? There is cause and effect, and it's laid out in the way he wants things to happen. So in this view the superlapsarian view, 
the idea is that God chose whom to elect to salvation first and then his plan laid out how the fall would happen, how the provision for salvation would happen, and how human decision would happen. Okay. Now, the higher something is in the list, the more important it is, because first things determine what follows, right? A superlapsarian, who is an ultra-Calvinist, will argue that the first thing God did in his plan of redemption was that he decided who would be saved. That's what this thing, election, means. It means the decision by God of who will be saved. Now, I want you to jump over here to the Arminian view. Okay? The word election appears there, but you probably know that Arminians have a different understanding of election than Calvinists do. Everybody who's within these three, who is a Calvinist, believes in sovereign election, Sovereign election is what happens when God, apart from any merit or quality of an individual person, says, I'm going to save Dave Dean. He's a dirty, rotten sinner, but I'm going to save him. And I'm going to let Dave Dean's father, who is also a dirty, rotten sinner, go to hell. Okay? That's sovereign election. God just picks because he picks. Okay? Calvinists believe in sovereign election. Arminians don't. Arminians believe in what they call foresight election. Foresight election is based upon a test, not a choice. Foresight election says that God looks down through the corridors of time and he looks at each individual and he evaluates that person. He says, if the gospel was to go to this person, would this person believe? And if the answer is yes, he writes down that person's name on the list of the elect. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like salvation by merit, not by grace. And that's why I cannot be here. But historically, the church has not called Arminians heretics. And we need to be careful not to do so. I do personally think that Arminians generally move in this direction as they learn more of Scripture. But there are godly believers who are Arminians and hold this view. Okay? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a fair statement that we generally start as Arminians and as we learn more, hopefully, we move in this direction. But yeah, I, I think we, we have a higher estimate of our participation in the process of salvation when we start than we have after we look at scripture and start thinking about what God was doing and the drawing work of the Holy Spirit and all the things that went on that we had no participation in. Yes. I agree with that very strongly. Okay. Now, you see the sequence, right? Election moves down. It becomes less important as you move from the ultra-Calvinist side to the Arminian side. But you notice that in all the Calvinistic sections, election comes before decision. Now, what does that mean? That means that God is in control regarding who is going to be saved. 
As long as election is before decision, God is the one who determines who is going to be saved. That doesn't mean you don't have to believe in order to be saved, but it does mean that God is going to bring about the necessary conditions for you to hear and believe because he has chosen you. Now down here, decision comes first in the decree. And this is basically, this decision here, this is the one that man does. Okay? When you put decision above election, what you're really saying is that man is in charge at this part of the plan. Okay? And again, this is why I have difficulty with this view. Okay? This really makes man in charge at least in this part of the plan. Not necessarily in this part. Okay? Don't say that Arminians say that God isn't sovereign at all. They don't say that. They just say that God is not sovereign in the matter of deciding who gets saved. Now, most of them won't say that man is sovereign in that matter, but that's the implication of their view, as I understand it. Okay? All right, let's look at these in a little detail. The supralapsarian or ultra-Calvinistic view says that God cho chose first before he chose anything else, even before he decided how man's uh, how the means of salvation would be provided. He chose who would be saved. Okay? Then he decreed how the fall would happen. Then he decreed how Christ would provide a means of salvation. And then he decreed who would decide. Okay? This position places God in the highest level of sovereignty with regard to salvation. Okay? It's called ultra-Calvinistic. People who hold this view generally hold to limited atonement, and this is why. If God decided who would get saved first, then there was no need for Christ to provide for the salvation of anybody but the elect, right? He already knew who was going to get saved. It's economical for Christ only to go to the cross for that limited number of people who are on the list of the elect. Can you see it? Now, it is not necessary that these people hold to limited atonement. You could hold this view and just say that God still had Christ die on the cross for the sins of everybody. But generally, people who are in this category are there because they believe in limited atonement. That's usually the motivation. Okay? All right, the second view is the infralapsarian view. That's called infra because the doctrine of, I'm sorry, the decree of election is between the decree of the fall and the decree of provision. Now again, because the choice of who will be saved precedes the choice of what Christ will do in providing salvation, it's certainly possible in this view to hold to the limited atonement view. And people who are here generally do hold to limited atonement. But they could hold to unlimited atonement. Can you see it? Okay. Now the third view is called the sub-lapsarian view. That's because the decree to elect is below both fall and provision. Now in this view, God decrees that the fall will occur. He decrees 
that Christ will die for the sins of men, but since he hasn't decided who's going to get saved yet, he has to provide provision for everybody so that it will cover whomever he then decides to put on the list of the elect. Does that make sense? You want me to go over it again? Okay, you be quiet, Tommy. I don't want to start fighting yet. Okay? Now, <clears throat> that's not right. This should be over here. In fact, I need to change that on the chart. Um, this, does it say, do I have limited or unlimited on the chart? Yeah. If I do cross it out, it's an error. Okay? In this view, you have to hold to unlimited atonement. These should say limited or unlimited. Right? No. Yeah. Yes. Both of them. Okay? See, I'm always finding typos. In this view, you have to hold to unlimited atonement because the choice to provide salvation was made before the choice of whom to provide it to. Okay? The first view, again, superlapsarian is ultra-Calvinistic. Infralapsarian is Calvinistic, and sublapsarian is modified Calvinistic. Okay, but it's Calvinistic. These people are typically four-point Calvinists. These are typically five-point Calvinists. And if you don't know what that means, we can talk about it sometime. David, how can the person be unlimited? Oh, it can be. It, it, it can be. It doesn't have to be. Okay. God could decide to provide for the sins of everybody. Remember, since decision is last, nobody gets saved without believing. So if Christ provided enough atonement for everybody, it won't it'll only be applied to the elect. Okay? So this could be limited or unlimited, but the people who hold this view generally hold it because they believe in limited. Okay? And the same would be true here. But this one has to be unlimited. All right? I got that wrong. I'm sorry. Okay, the Arminian view, we've already gone over. They put the decree of decision before the decree of election, and they're basically saying that man gets to decide who gets saved. Now, they have to hold the unlimited atonement, obviously, because, again... Election is way below provision. It follows it logically. Okay? Lori. Um, we will talk about... My goal tonight is not to discuss the extent of the atonement, believe it or not. We will get to that, but it won't be tonight. But that's an important question. Okay? You know, the, the, whole, the whole question of what Scripture teaches whether scripture teaches that the atonement is limited or teaches that it is unlimited is a topic that we will deal with at some point, but we're not going to deal with it now. What I, what I, the reason I gave you this is I want you to understand that in your whatever view you take of God's plan of redemption, you need to understand that your view is going to fall into one of these categories, and that's going to have some bearing as to how you understand the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, as long as you're between here and here, okay, you believe that God is sovereign in salvation. 
if you're over here, you basically believe that man is sovereign in salvation. Now, it's interesting to look at the groups that hold these views. Okay, Most ultra-Calvinists are Presbyterians. I didn't say most Presbyterians are ultra-Calvinists because that is not true. Okay, <coughs> Most infralapsarian Calvinists are Presbyterians. Okay, Most sublapsarians are Presbyterians, Baptists, or Lutherans. Okay, Just so you know, this is where I am. Okay, I'm a sublapsarian. It's also called Amaraldianism after a person, you know, who promoted this view. Okay? What's that? Amaraldus. I think it was Amaraldus, if I'm not mistaken, but Amaraldianism, I know that's what it's called. Um, the Arminian view is very close to semi-Pelagianism. Okay? Now, semi-Pelagianism is the view of the Roman Catholic Church that says that human beings are capable of living sinless lives if they choose to. They would also argue that man does contribute something to his salvation. You know, they have a lot of doctrines that we don't have. Now, I didn't say this was semi-Pelagian. I said it's close to it. All right? This view is generally held by Methodists, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, and holiness groups. Now, again, these are painted with broad strokes. Okay? There are probably some exceptions. But that's, that's kind of where the theological territory is laid out. Okay? Now, without trying to settle the question of whether the Bible teaches limited or unlimited atonement, because I don't want to get into that tonight, do you understand the basic concept that I'm trying to communicate to you here? Okay? It's, it's really a very useful thing to keep in mind Make sure you correct your charts. I'm sorry that they've got errors in them. Um, again, this should say limited or unlimited, limited or unlimited, and this should say unlimited only, and unlimited only here. Um, it really is helpful to think in these terms, and it kind of gives you a handle on why people hold the views they do. Now, practically speaking, I said this before, but let me say it again. Which one of these categories you fall into, practically speaking, is determined by whether you think the Bible teaches limited atonement or unlimited atonement? Except for this column. This column is driven by something else. People who hold this column are driven by the insistence that man is not totally depraved and the insistence that the person who is in charge of whether I get saved or not is me, not God. Okay. Now, they happen to hold the unlimited view, but it's not because that view drives them here. It's because this has to go here. Okay. And the reason I'm saying that is to defend myself from you saying that I'm here because of this. Okay. You see, you see what I'm saying? Um, just because I think that Scripture teaches the atonement is unlimited doesn't mean I hold anything in this. You know, I think this is terribly unbiblical. Okay? Um, 
Let's see. Is there anything else I want to say? I think I think I've covered everything I want to say. Um, Paul. Do we have any verses that might shed light on the order of first, second, third, Well, okay. Yeah, I think so. I think Romans chapter eight, verses twenty-nine to thirty, shed light on it. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 11 you know any of the passages that speak of God's sovereignty and his plan are going to well not any of them but many of them are going to shed light on this I mean I think Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 3 um, can't think of any others off the top of my head but I think those all strongly push us on this side of the line. Okay? And I absolutely agree with you. And then I, I don't think that any of those passages that you necessarily said would actually put you in either one of those categories. Yeah. It would have to be your view on the atonement yeah. would make you in either one of those. Right. Those, right. those passages you said would put you on that side. But they would they will, yeah, they're not going to determine where you're going to be in here. Okay? And, and, you know, that observation is very important because I want you to be aware that your view of the extent of the atonement is not nearly as important as your understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Okay? And, you know, there are people who have strong views on the extent of the atonement, and I'm one of them, but I don't get into arguments with people about it. I just don't think it's worth it. Now, when we get to that part of the course, I will present to you what I see as the evidence on both sides, and of course, you will say that I'm biased when I present it to you. I can't help that. <laughs> but you will make your own choice, and that's fine, but don't be over here. Okay? I hope you're not over here. We do have people in our church who are over here, and we have fellowship with them, and they're not heretics. Okay? But I honestly don't think that being on this side of the line is a sound way of looking at what Scripture teaches. Okay. When do I? Oh, I've I've I I haven't called somebody a heretic, but I have said to someone in our church who held a particular doctrine that that doctrine was heretical. Okay, there are things that I will that I will say that's wrong okay but I try not to do that too often um, you know th there is room for differently nuanced understandings of what the scripture teaches but certain things are outside the bounds of scripture such as baptismal regeneration you know things like that like the difference in these two completely change the nature from here to here they completely change the nature. Well, I, I believe that I, I believe that this one doesn't accurately represent the nature or the work of God as it is presented in Scripture. Okay, you know, if I were defining the rules, I'd probably call this heretical. But since it hasn't historically been heretical, I'm not going to insist that the rule be changed to accommodate my opinion. All right, all right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had together tonight. Thank you for the challenge 
of understanding your word. Thank you for maintaining peace among us as brothers and sisters, even as we ponder difficult things. Father, we know that we are prone to error in our sinfulness. We're prone to self-deception. We're prone to ignore the obvious. We ask you that you would be persistent with us and not let us get away with those things, but bring each of us into a deeper and clearer understanding of you through your word and a deeper and more pleasing to you obedience of what you have called us to do. Please dismiss us with your blessing. Give us your protection as we go home and enable us to walk the rest of the week not just in a godly and holy way, but enable us to walk with hope, remembering that the most important things that we need have already been settled because of what your Son has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.